shadow only exists when there is light and when there is something obstructing that light from knowing itself and then it casts that shadow and therefore shadow becomes what I think of as like a scrying mirror an opportunity for the witch or the person to look into that scrying mirror and go who am I you know that primal question that was Fio de Gay Parma my guest for this episode and just a note before we get started my nickname for this podcast is Dogus Interruptus. You will occasionally hear from Winnie and Murphy, and this was the latest episode that I recorded, and my dogs were like toddlers up past their bedtime. So thank you for understanding that they are babies that want to be near me even when I'm recording things, and hopefully you will appreciate the cute occasional Dogus Interruptus. I'm chatting with Theo Gade Parma, who is a Balinese-Australian hereditary spirit worker, seer, diviner, and initiated witch. Theo has been a dedicated and passionate, purposeful mentor of witches and spirit workers for 15 years and serves with love in Wildwood, Reclaiming, and Anderson Fairy Traditions. They are the award-winning author of several books and anthologies, including Ecstatic Witchcraft, Magic of the Iron Pentacle with Jane Meredith, and Elements of Magic, also with Jane Meredith. Fio has taught witchcraft and spirit work in five continents. And Fio, you're joining me from Australia, right? Yeah, I, I, I live in the Gadigal and Bidjigal country, which is unceded, stolen land. Is your family still there? Are they back in Bali? So I was born in Bali. My father lives in Bali and his whole family lives in Bali, apart from me and my sister and my mom. And my mom is, you know, a white Australian of British and Irish and Scottish ancestry. And she lives in, well, currently she lives in regional New South Wales nursing. And, but they're still married. And actually she's about to try to get back to Bali. Yeah. Neat. So <laughs> what are your spiritual or religious roots? Where did you start? Yeah, so I was raised thinking of myself as a Hindu but many people don't know this. Many people do know this, that Bali is an island in the Indonesian archipelago, but also it's 90, I think now it's probably 90% Hindu. Mm -hmm. The kind of um, Hinduism came to, to Indonesia, I think it was in the 900s or the, or the, or the, or the um, 11th century, somewhere between there with uh, several kind of waves of Indian empires. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous ones was the Majapahit Empire. And so it used to be that there were Indian Hindu empires and, and societies kind of spread throughout the islands, especially Sumatra and Java, and, um, and then into Bali um, as well um, from the, I believe, the 10th to the 11th centuries. So Hinduism came into Bali where there already was, of course, indigenous cultures, so-called animistic cultures, spirit working cultures, and Hinduism is often very pluralistic and polytheistic in many ways and very mystical. So I guess it just kind of syncretized. Well, I don't guess, I know it did. It syncretized over um, hundreds of years to form the very unique form of Hinduism that we call Balinese Hinduism or Agama Tarta, which means the teaching of the water, the sacred water, which is really important in Bali. So I was raised with that, but I was also raised with an understanding that I was part of a family that was involved in what the Western world would call spirit work. And my father would sometimes just say, oh, it's magic. <laughs> he would also say, use the word yoga, but in the more traditional sense. Like, so a lot of people obviously think yoga means like asana or posture or maybe pranayama, maybe 
be breathwork and it's in a class with someone teaching you over the period of an hour how to go through some sequence but yoga is uh that's like the tiniest piece of what maybe yoga could be so yoga is really like an entire mystical spiritual philosophy that incorporates magical rituals so sometimes he would use that word for what we did so I grew up that way, but I also grew up in Australia and I would go back and forth to Bali. And when I was 11, I realized I was a witch. So very early on, I realized I was a witch. And that was on the backdrop of knowing that my grand, my father's parents, my grandparents were very magically potent people who were very well respected as spirit workers in their communities. So I knew that to be true. And I did kind of feel this call to just keep following in that lineage but what I was drawn to, because um, which is an English word and in the, and in the so-called West, that often turns up in the form of magical Euro- European magical witchcraft traditions, of which I'm also deeply um, in- invested in, because, of course, I'm invested in all of my ancestry. And so I definitely practice to this day a syncretic form of traditional witchcraft that is deeply inspired and influenced and based in British and Irish uh, folklore and uh, yeah, Western and Southern European cosmologies as well. Yeah, they're both going to enjoy me. So if you were to guide someone through your spiritual evolution, which I feel like you just did, but is there another pivotal moment that you'd often point out?
Yeah, there are several pivotal moments because I'm also involved in traditions of witchcraft. So one can be just be a witch, like several, like many people are just witches um, and they never align with or study with or apprentice to a formal tradition or a lineage. Like some people just are witches and they just do their thing. But I happen to desire a lot of structure and also I desired kinship. So I knew I wanted to involve myself in traditions of witchcraft. And some people sometimes say that's like, oh, it's like denomination of Christianity, but it's actually quite different because it's initiatory. Although some Christian Christian traditions are initiatory, but it's initiatory and it's quite often quite small and very private. But all my initiations into those traditions are pivotal moments. And But more than that, it's the meeting of the teachers who ended up being my initiators that were pivotal. One of the most pivotal things happened to me when I was 15, when I was doing a full moon ritual in my mother's kitchen in the town I grew up in. And I was invoking this generic moon goddess, because at the time I was working from a more open style, eclectic, Wiccan-y kind of framework, because that's what I had at the time. And I was invoking this generic moon goddess, unnamed moon goddess. And before my very eyes, the full moon rising through the kitchen window moved visibly into the room. And this is one of the most intense experiences of my life. And all my skin just went, like all my hair on my skin went on end. Mm -hmm. And I was faced with this luminous sculpture made of moonlight in the form of a woman. And it was deeply profound. It's hard to speak about. Um, and, and in that moment, at the height and the peak of that moment, the name Persephone just fell out of my mouth without thinking, without consciously knowing why I would say that. And waves and waves of emotion and broke over me. And it was like a reconnection with something that I had known many, many, many lifetimes, which I know now to be true. So that, that happened when I was 15. And that set me on the path of working with the gods. Because, you know, a witch doesn't have to do that. But I certainly have embraced working with the great spirits who we, who humans designate as gods. And one of the primary marriages that I have is to Persephone. So that, that was a very pivotal initiatory moment for me. That's amazing. I feel like I've had similar revelatory moments when I started exploring Buddhism, you know, and it, it just... It, there's moments when you realize that something that you're exploring just feels right or feels true. And I was thinking about something that you said in the podcast that you sent me about how, wait, now I'm, I'm getting the podcast confused in the, the book of yours that I've been reading, but you were talking about how not everybody is a witch that there's, I mean, you, you can call yourself a witch, but it, it, it's a bit of a calling or that, that, the it calls you correct. Yeah. I mean, most most witches I know would say you're born a witch. And what we mean by that is not that you come from this established long line of hereditary witches, which is always hard to prove anyway. But um, uh, And why would you want to? And most people who do don't talk about it. One is just kind of born with that predisposition. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes I can meet, I meet a lot of people in my line of work who are interested in magic and witchcraft. And sometimes I'll walk into a room and there'll be a bunch of people there Many of them are already deeply established practicing witches, but there'll be someone very new, or maybe I'm walking down the street, or maybe they've come into a store that I've been reading at, uh, reading tarot at, and I'm just hit by this overwhelming, oh, that's a witch. And sometimes they don't even know that yet. And so, and this is not like a, it's not like a religious thing. It's not like, oh, you are a this or a that. It's, it's more of a phenomenal thing. I talk about witches and I think about witches as being quite integral to the collective soul 
or consciousness of, of earth and our solar system and potentially even more because we we all belong to the cosmos um but i think of witches as like either immune cells or phagocytes which are like these devouring things that devour free radicals in the body of the earth and that's like I think of witches that way, that that the more humans are incarnated on planet Earth, therefore the percentage, uh, maybe the percentage of witches in proportion doesn't change, but um, more witches come about because the Earth requires witches. And that's kind of just how a lot of us story it. But it's also generally the experience that someone looks back through their life and they're like, oh, shit, I've been doing this the whole time and I just didn't know and so there are people who are witches who might never call themselves witches. And I wouldn't say you're a witch, you're a witch, you have to be a witch, but I know they're witches. Um, and they might never, they might never embrace it, but, but they can make things happen. They can work with fate and twist and bend it. They can get the attention of spirits. They can divine, they can state something and the world changes around them. That's what I mean. And these are the things that are folklorically, historically connected to witchcraft all over the planet. So a witch can make something happen, can change or bend or twist something, can make something fruit or make, make something wither, can turn the babe in the womb or abort the fetus, can get the attention of spirits, can fly. That's a big one. The ecstatic static flight that takes us in communion, often quite erotic communion. Witchcraft is, is deeply erotic. And the way it was spoken about during the trial periods was was very erotically a lot of those patriarchal catholic and protestant repressed suppressed um like sexualities projected onto the bodies of you know women people who are assigned female at birth that was a really intense part of the fetishization of the body of the witch that leads into the third question quite well how do you define the erotic yeah so I, I'm kind of in a place where I'm trying to adjust that because I have people who've come out in my life over the past several years as asexual. And certainly I know that to be a thing, right? I personally don't know it in myself, but I know many people who are experiencing themselves and identify as a, a, as ace or asexual and know that to be true. And I would never want to say to to any and to anyone who doesn't want this, I to, who who doesn't want to embrace this. But I I would personally consider what I consider the erotic to embrace everyone because the erotic the erotic is intimate. Like so so for me, I think of like I go back to being a witch and a spirit worker. When I am conjuring a spirit into the circle, if I'm if I'm traveling into the other world and meeting with a spirit, it often has this quality or it regularly has this quality, not all the time, it regularly has this quality of deep, profound intimacy where something changes, something is risked, something adjusts, something shifts. And usually that shift or adjustment or change reveals wisdom. So I feel that the erotic is the very like uh, the very presence of the divine. And, and to me, that's in and as all things. So when the divine is distilling herself, themself, itself, all self and expressing infinitely, which it does all the time, infinitely, 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 that moment of being able to perceive that and receive that and kind of encompass it and being encompassed in it is erotic. That doesn't have to be sexual or what humans are taught sexuality is. I think, of course, we could open that up. But the erotic to me, 
I can't not think about the divine. I can't not think about profound intimacy that changes or that affirms like deep core worth. And that burns through illusion. That's a, that's a tricky word, right? But by illusion, I mean, like when I'm in my own way, <laughs> or or when I'm bound up in a story and the story is no I'm no I'm no, like I'm no longer writing the story the story is writing me and it's dictating reality to me through a lens that I've forgotten is a lens like that that's the realm of illusion and usually the erotic can actually undo that so many things first of all book recommendation asexual erotics by Ella Prisvilo the subtitle is Intimate Readings of Compulsory Sexuality. Mm. So Ella's an academic. Last we talked, she was working at Northwestern. I'm not sure if she still is, but she draws from Audre Lorde's definition of the erotic. And so so I, I asked her in an interview how what the term erotic means to her. And she says... Audre Lorde talks about the erotic in these really beautiful and playful ways that can potentially be about sexuality, but that can also be about other things as well that make space for asexuality. And she was talking about how for Lorde, the erotic is this life energy that can be manifested as sex, but doesn't have to be. Mm, Um, It can be a lot of things. And I, I found, I guess this is tangent upon tangent, but I found one of Audre Lorde's essays in the um, Pleasure Activism. Mm-hmm. And the quote that has stuck with me and has really defined my relationships is, the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire for having experienced the fullness of the steps of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect. We can require no less of ourselves. I know that it's sort of a mouthful, but I don't know, like combining what you were saying with like, for me, I think I'm, I'm turning to what, how does the erotic fit in with the sense of self-integrity? And it feels like what you're saying is that the erotic gives you some of that integrity in terms of how you commune with the divine, potentially through other people? Potentially, yeah. And other people of all kinds, like tree people and bird people and wave people and rock people and star people. So, And that that's very relevant, I think, to a lot of people who are rediscovering their magical world. Because the thing about magic is that it reveals to you an enchanted landscape in which everything is talking to everything else and that in in which there are a multiplicity of conversations and connections all of the time and so of course in in that there's a lot of navigation and negotiation and discernment so as not to disrupt important conversations that might be happening between this being and this being and this constellation of consciousness and this constellation of consciousness like so and and there's a lot of work in 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 witchcraft to align purify ground check in with space and land and self and the different levels of self or the different the different souls that we talk about so there's a lot of emphasis on that as a way to help orient in the erotic landscape, in the enchanted landscape. Seems like it's a lot of learning how to listen or mm-hmm. be more aware. Does that feel true? Yeah, I, I've often quipped that, you know, the prime skills in witchcraft are paying attention and taking notice. So definitely that is absolutely required. 
I was trying to find in your book, going back to what you're talking about, one of the important parts of witchcraft being a knowledge or awareness of infinite possibility. Was that the term you used or it was something like it? Yeah. Oh God, what did I say in that book? So I wrote that book like over, over 10 years ago and it came out in 2012 and is currently actually out of print. Um, the, that, that, yeah. I think tell me how it's changed, how your thoughts have changed around it. Um, many of my thoughts haven't changed, but I would probably speak them differently now. But I think I said in that book, the worldview of infinite possibility. And I still mean that, like when I walk through the world, I can't presume or assume that I know what's going on. Mm. Like in it, like my, my very meager limited understanding of like, I have several friends who are both witches and scientists, mm. um, like the professional working scientists and researchers. And I think that's a marvelous interaction. And the, there's a poetry and, and an art in science as well as a technicality and a methodology, of course, but, you know, science works in hypotheses and models. So what I, what, I, what I often find is that really deeply committed science people are very mystical, often. And there's an assumption that, oh, I do not know. Like, I, I've heard it said that one of the most scientific answers is, I do not know, I don't know. Whereas in, which is an answer I often favor for certain questions I'm asked, like, what happens after you die? And often I'll say, I don't know. And I don't really care. <laughs> like, it's not what I'm concerned with. But other religious traditions might have, a, as you would know, have really complex eschatology or complex ways of thinking about death and the afterlife or even the concept of an afterlife and what that means. So... The, the idea of the worldview of infinite possibility is to cultivate within oneself the I don't know anything could happen. And when, and when you're in that space, it's, it's true that I have witnessed, perceived and experienced certain things that are not scientifically explainable. And I choose not to find, like, sometimes I, like, I, I think, oh, could it have been this? Could it have been this? Could it have been this? But also it's important. Like a lot of people, I hear people go, oh, it's, I wonder if it's this or this or this. And I'm like, well, what if it's and this and this and this? Like, what if it has multiple origins? I'm more interested in the and than the either or. Yeah. And that's what I'm, that I think a lot of people, witches and, and, and people who are interested or, or having, just having mystical experiences or intimate experiences or erotically charged revelatory experiences are, are beginning to realize that them that their and our models or, or ideas or projections or assumptions about how the life systems are actually working might actually be deeply limited. Yeah, and I think I think part of why I'm putting this together when you're when you're talking about what the erotic means to you and you're you're talking about the the possibilities of magic that you've discovered for yourself. When I read something, when I read Starhawk, for example. Like, I can't go to sleep. I feel like all of a sudden the world is a new thing or it's different than I've imagined it to be. Or there's so much possibility in the renaming of things, of the deconstruction of my ideas of things. And I get excited about, about the possibilities of what the world could be, what my life could be, what I'm missing. And I feel like there's also often those same feelings around what, what sex could be, what our relationships could be, what our relationships with our body could be. There's sort of this similar sense of like, we followed, well, I'll just say I, I followed these scripts and using the word like bliss, like there's always the possibility of bliss, but it's how to get there. It's how to 
deconstruct and open oneself up to these new possibilities that are more connected to the divine, connected to each other, connected to our bodies. And it's both super exciting. And then it also feels tragic in a way that it's so hard to see those possibilities realize. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, one of the things that I try to, I don't know what it is, is it qualifying? Is it contextualizing? The thing is, there are many very real systems of oppression that have very real impact on bodies and to me everything is body that like that's the core of my mystery cosmology everything is body eating body you know merging with body devouring body laying down with body opening body like everything is body I don't think of this idea this duality of spirit and body it never made sense to me as a child and when people talk like that physical material etheric spiritual I'm like what does that mean like You know, there were very real impacts on systems of oppression. And sometimes I have been around or even friends with or acquaintances with people who hold to certain what I would call new age ideologies. And often they are culturally decontextualized or culturally misappropriative or they have no like they're they're often very dualistic, you know, light versus darkness, um, expansion versus contraction, um, up versus down. Like I've met people who tell me they live only in their upper three chakras and things like that. Absurd, absurd things, you know, or people who say, oh, don't wear a condom because you're fear. You're wearing a condom because you're you're in a state of fear and that fear will lock you in a fear reality. I'm like, wow, you really have no grasp of metaphysics at all. Like, like, <laughs> like it's just really, gro- honestly, quite gross to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are these things that get in the way and these... I don't know what to call them, malevolent deceptions, these insidiously uh, manipulative deceptions, this kind of societal gaslighting Mm. um, around what we can expect to happen in our lives, erotically and sexually, specifically, and spiritually, although to me it's all one. But um, it it is a kind of cultural amnesia or cultural gaslighting in in which certain identities within that matrix will actually take on the role and become quite consciously complicit in passing on certain messages to others because they've readily in, in, internalized them because they because that internalization grants power and privilege and then the conveyance of it grants even more power and privilege so we you know often people like myself might make a dismissive quip but you know there's reality like oh cis het white men are perhaps the most privileged you know blah 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 and I have many friends who are cis het white men and and their bodies are just as sacred you know and 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 they are also divine so i'm able to hold the paradox of the difference between bodies and identities but also the intersecting reality of bodies and identities like bodies merge with identities identities merge with bodies all of the time and we're all just trying to express something that we're experiencing perceiving feeling what i think is really interesting is like i would definitely say i'm a pluralist like i think it's important to be able to understand and cultivate mutual respect different cultures and different ways of life and different disciplines and different commitments that all either respect each other or kind of support each other to exist and so you know, that can be hard in a world in which there are many forms of existing that actually want to dominate and devour and destroy other forms of existing, or that say the other forms of existing are evil or distracting or devoid of value. And so that can be make it really hard for folks, especially of marginalized experience who are being actively oppressed to kind of feel legitimate 
and yet the most and, and therefore and yet and with the most audacious people I know are often those who have grown up in communities that are marginalized or in identities that are actively oppressed and so because there has you have to be you often have to be audacious you, you often have to be defiant you often have to be angry and that can be complex and that can also unfortunately block pleasure that can make it hard for certain folks to experience pleasure and to embrace pleasure so when i see my my brown and black friends and my and my you know beloveds of color like fully just going with pleasure and joy <laughs> that is defiance in a way that's beautiful it's an offering to oneself to one's ancestors and one one's cousins and descendants you know claim claim joy claim pleasure and and just go for it for sure and so I think part of what you're saying is that there's so many things that can get in the way of all of these possibilities and yet some of the things that get in the way of those possibilities are also it doesn't have to limit your liberation. Yeah, it doesn't have to. It often does. But but the thing is, like a lot of liber a lot of liberation, at least for me, happens inside. Like there's this, um, and obviously then it has to happen outside. <laughs> there's this part of the fifth sacred thing, which is a novel by Starhawk, which you may have read or others may have read. And if you haven't, it's really really brilliant. I think it was written in the early 90s. But there's this part where one of the key characters, one of the protagonists of the story wakes into consciousness and they realize they're in prison and they're, and they're basically like enslaved in prison. And there's actually a lot of moments of, for me, like it was hard, like there were, there were moments of sexuality, especially between AMAB people in that story that were really abrupt. And I was like, wait, what? And I guess it was very true to the story and true to what was trying to be conveyed in the story and the narrative. But there's this moment where I think his name is Bird, but where this character is basically in, in a prison and they are cleaning and they realize they need to do this spell um, in order to kind of set something into motion. And they're not quite sure what it is yet, but they, they need to like get the fuck out of this prison and get back to their beloveds. And so they take a bit of hair, a bit of semen, a bit of spit, like they, they take the tiniest fragments of what they know is sacred and powerful and the, the sunlight coming through the the bars and the and like breathe trying to breathe the wind and like trying to connect with the power of the elements and sweeping and sweeping and sweeping that scene that vignette is so powerful because inside this horrific very real prison very real limits this person is setting into motion an action that actually changes things and I I, from my own experience, although I've never faced imprisonment and I have friends who have, so I can't speak to that and I can't speak on their behalf, but I know stories from many people who have moved through very real limits with magic and magic, oh God, magic that I don't, I, I seek not to define it. I think Starhawk has a, a definition in one of her books that I really enjoy. Um, magic is the art of empowering ourselves and others or something like that, or magic is the art of liberation or which it is. <laughs> and to be able to move your consciousness like that and to avail yourself of various forms and signatures of consciousness that then affect the outward seeming world. That's a very real thing. I know it to be very real. I've devoted my life to teaching it. <laughs> and I do think it's empowering. And I don't just think it's empowering to the, you know, quote unquote self or whatever that inner authentic core is that I don't know what people mean when they say that, but that prime moat of selfhood, that's seeking to express, that's yearning to connect and to be connected with, that can channel profound 
change. And so I don't know that there, there, there are very real limits and, and I, and I seek to point them out and name them. Like one thing in witchcraft that I love is that we, that many traditions of witchcraft have this practice of demon work, which is similar. There's a similar practice in Tibetan Buddhism, I think called Chod, where you basically name your demons. You have tea with your demons. You look at them. You also basically in the working of this, like often these demons are broken fragments of ourselves that we're trying to do a job, you know, because we were unsafe or insecure or in a horrible situation. They were trying to keep us safe at one point, but we never, we never consciously acknowledged, thanked and released them from their task. And they keep doing this thing that now is actually getting in our way and sabotaging us and trying to keep us a particular size or in a particular state where we'll be safe, small perhaps. And we don't draw attention, which maybe used to keep us safe, but now it's getting in our way. So to name these things and to be able to put them in an external locus and focus is to be able to work with them and eventually perhaps make them our lovers, make them our co-conspirators. And maybe if we desire, um, reabsorb them as well. It sounds a lot like shadow work or it's a type of shadow work. Yeah, I would agree with that. But as I age and I've de- like I've taught multiple like uh, intensives on shadow work, I'm like, what do I mean when I say shadow work? So I tend to use the word demon, demon dancing or demon work because I, well, I like more provocative words and shadow. Like, I'm interested. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I, I guess I'm calling to mind the, the union idea of those pieces of ourselves that we have a hard time embracing. And I think to me, part of what I love about it is when I first discovered it, when I first started breaking down this idea of light being good and dark being bad, it was through a fantasy series by Anne Bishop. Uh Oh, that hey dog friends yeah <laughs> <laughs> i just want to acknowledge them. <laughs> one of them is four months old and one is 15 months old so they're still oh. super young there was supposed to be a balance and that the dark side or the shadow side of these characters held a lot of possibility and power and good and, and sexuality yeah. And so I'm, I'm drawn to the idea of shadow work being things of reclaiming things that folks have said is bad or evil, but just has not been loved, you know, for a long time. Yeah. And then potentially has become something that we would consider challenging or confronting and uncomfortable. Yeah. I, yeah. That's how I understand what people mean when they say shadow work, what I mean when I say that I'm not trained as a Jungian psychotherapist. I'm not (laughs) trained as a Jungian archetypalist, but, and I haven't read enough Jung. So maybe that's why I'm like, Oh, what do I mean? Like it's a word that which some witches use or some new age practitioners use or some modern metaphysicians use. And, and I'm like, well, I know what I mean when I say demon work. I know what I mean when I say that. So it's perhaps, it's perhaps, um, I mean, shadow is an interesting term, isn't it? Like you can't have shadow without light and, and you can't like specifically, whereas you can have darkness without light, like in witchcraft cosmology, often it's darkness that is preceding all things. Even in Genesis, like currently the book I'm writing, I'm, I'm unpacking a lot of the mysticism 
in Gnostic Christianity as it connects to traditional witchcraft, because it does, mm. but also this idea, like when, when we're looking at the translations of Genesis, like these, what, you know, and there's a lot of filters there. Mm. There's this one phrase that has always captured me. And I didn't grow up. Like, I remember I made myself read the Bible as a teenager because I was being um, actively bullied by Christians at school and I wanted to understand. <laughs> um, so I read Genesis and um, and much of the, much of the book didn't finish in, in entirely, but I would say I read like ninety percent of it. Um, the that the spirit of you know in, in the beginning there what is it maybe you would know but there's this there's this passage where god the spirit of god hovers upon the dark waters and that to me goes i'm like oh i know that because that's what we talk about in witchcraft we talk about darkness and we talk about the primal black void that is the raging chasm of space which is the womb of god herself that you know you know that's how we talk about it sensuously delightfully but it appears but it appears in genesis that um, he, he sees the light and knows it's good and he separates the light from the darkness. And there's this like a lot of like, like almost like architectural metaphor, whereas in witchcraft uh, creation stories, it's, it's um, quite uh, sexual. Right. Like there's a lot of sexual metaphor. And, you know, I know uh, like several like key modern witchcraft theologians would say that we we say the goddess or we say god herself because what we're valuing is life coming into being mm. we're valuing birthing mm. and we also understand the goddess like when we say the goddess we're not talking about a goddess we're talking about a which also exists within that infinite but we're talking about a mystery that births that destroys that sustains that changes and we are that like we we are that so that's super interesting to me because shadow, the reason I mentioned that is because shadow is different from that. And I think some people conflate shadow and darkness, but shadow only exists when there is light and when there is something obstructing that light from knowing itself and then it casts that shadow and therefore shadow becomes what I think of as like a scrying mirror, an opportunity for the witch or the person to look into that scrying mirror and go, who am I? You know, that primal question. No, that's interesting. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. What What are you working on? You're working on the book. Do you have other workshops and classes coming up too? Yeah, like, oh, look, I, I'm just I, I often have a lot of feelings come up in me when people ask me what I'm what I'm doing or when I'm asking myself sure. what I'm doing, um, and that's because I kind of am always doing something and and. Um, yeah, so it's kind of nonstop. Um, I'll say this: what I love, I love guiding people to their craft. I love teaching magical technique and watching people be like, "Wow, my box is broken now!" And like, "Oh, the world is full of fun and intensity and beauty and profound holy dread." <laughs> that is a delight to me. Um, so yeah, like if people are interested in what I'm teaching, I'm always teaching some something. Like I teach a lot in private lineages, which there's, you know, that's that's probably my dearest form of teaching, guiding mentorship. But I actually do also mentor people. I have some prerequisites. Usually for one-on-one mentorship, I need to have met you. I need to have been in some kind of ritual or magical space with you. And, you know, you need to have been practicing your, whatever your thing is for at least a year. You, that's my prerequisites. Although at the moment I'm open to um, working with small groups of people one-on-one. Oh, sorry. Small groups of people like three or four people they know each other but I've met one of them so there's that link of knowing and then they all know each other or almost always I'm teaching like three or four um 
long courses at the same time. So I'm about, you know, I'm about to be teaching this reclaiming core class called Rites of Passage over six weeks. I'm in the middle of a of an angelic magic six-month course. I'm at the end of a nine-month foundations of witchcraft spirit work course that I'm teaching with my friend Lance. I'm about to teach a Dionysos intensive on queerness, mythos, and ecstasis over five hours in two weeks. Like I'm always teaching something. So both a lot of those upcoming events and the mentorship offerings and more can be found at fiogedeparma.com, F-I-O-G-E-D-E-P-A-R-M-A.com. And I'll have the link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for your time. And Thank you for having me. Yeah. 